It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. This is Trey. Thank you for joining us for another Tuesdays with Trey. I I like talking to interesting people. You've heard me say that before. This week is no exception. Mo Alethe is on television, so you may have seen him, um, but he is, more importantly, the executive director of Georgetown University's Institute of Politics and Public Service. He's worked in and around campaigns and elections. He has a particular expertise or emphasis or interest in communications. I like listening to him because he's thoughtful and he makes an effort um, to listen um, when the other side is talking and try to understand where they're coming from, which is smart, uh, smart advocacy. And recently, I had the pleasure of joining him at Georgetown for a wonderful evening. Uh, Mo, thank you for hosting us. It was flawless. Um, and I hope, you know, if anybody backs out at the last minute in the future, you'll, you'll, I'll be your eighth or ninth choice then too. Now, Trey, it's uh, it's a pleasure to be here. It was a pleasure to host you on campus. Uh, I was joking with someone uh, right after our event, given when I was working in democratic politics, given the number of press releases, I wrote attacking you. (laughs) If you had told me that we would one day be friends, we'd be sharing a stage at Georgetown, we'd be having a friendly chat on your podcast, I'd have thought you were smoking something. Uh, so that's one of the the beauties of your and my post-political lives is we can find some religion and get to know uh, get to know one another and, and people on the opposite side. Oh, I am sure I gave you plenty of ammunition. You could have written books, <laughs> not press releases. I, I, I think we probably did. <laughs> okay. That makes me, I'm so happy I was able to help you. All right, I want to start. Before you got where, I mean, I, I, I read about you and I learned things that I did not already know. I mean, we've been on panels together. That's when I first kind of, I mean, you have the courage to go on Fox News, which in the environment we're in right now, the easy thing to do, Mo, is to say no. I mean, that's the easy thing to do. But you, that's where I first kind of thought, you know, we may not agree on things, but but he has a thoughtful approach to himself and he has a very pleasant manner of communication. Where'd that come from? Tell us about Mo Alethe growing up. Well, I am uh, the son of immigrants. Uh, both of my parents uh, came to the United States from Egypt um, and um, grew up uh, in Arizona. I sort of became, <laughs> both of my parents were, when I was growing up, Republican. They were not particularly political. And for some reason, I was. Uh, I, I, and I, I think maybe out of uh, <laughs> defiance or re- rebellion, uh, became a Democrat very early in my life. But growing up in Arizona in sort of the 80s, 90s, growing up in Arizona to living in a Republican home in a Republican neighborhood, I kind of had to learn fairly early 
how to talk across the aisle, right? Um, and so that's just what I did. I came to, I left to come to school at Georgetown. Wasn't planning to go into politics. I came to Georgetown to go into the foreign service. I wanted to be a diplomat. And again, it was sort of that idea of being able to sit down and talk about things and negotiate things and, and find solutions to things that excited me. The people who wrote the foreign service exam apparently had different plans for me. <laughs> <laughs> and as I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do with my life, I'd always been politically interested. I'd always volunteered on campaigns. I had was involved in college Democrats at Georgetown. Um, I was here as a student uh, when Bill Clinton, another Georgetown alum, was elected to the presidency. And that campaign sort of electrified a lot of us and inspired a lot of us to find our callings in, in public service. Um, I, so when I didn't get into the Foreign Service, I decided, you know, maybe politics was a place for me. And so I started working on campaigns and never stopped. Well, you've told me something I did not know. I should have known that. So, I mean, you must be pretty smart. You got in Georgetown. That is a hard school to get into. I don't, I don't know that I could get in today. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, you, uh, you got in when you needed to get in, but there's a separate exam for foreign service that you have to score particularly well on or else you don't make it? If you want to be in the diplomatic corps, you have to pass an exam and there's an intense written exam. If you pass that, then there's an eight hour long oral exam. And if you pass that, then you go through security clearance and then you're in the queue. And if the spot opens up during a period of time, you're in. First time I took the exam, I failed. Second time I took the exam, I passed the written, but I failed the oral. The next year, they canceled the exam altogether because there were too many people in the queue. And I actually got in on my fourth try. I actually got in. Um, but I was having so much fun doing politics that I actually turned them down. Little did you know that if you just donated to the right campaign, you could be an ambassador. <laughs> you didn't have to do any of that. Well, the funny thing is when, um, you know, later on in my career, I worked for Hillary Clinton and her, her first presidential campaign. And uh, she went on to become state, you know, obviously secretary of state. And I reached out to folks and I was like, you know, maybe this is my shot. Uh, to finally go to work at the State Department. And I still have so much interest in global affairs and international affairs. And I think it's increasingly more important. But I, uh, I have no regrets. What, so the, the path I took in public service um, has been very, very fulfilling to me. I'm trying to think. I don't follow politics as closely as I should have. I'm trying to think of who else was seeking the Democrat nomination when she ran the first time. Yeah, it was this guy who I think he did all right. Um, no, it was, I got to tell you, being a part of that campaign between Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama, that Democratic uh, primary, talk about having a front row seat to history. Yeah, that was one of the most exciting, most energizing um, campaigns I've ever witnessed. And I was fortunate. I was her traveling press secretary. So I got to travel around the country 
with her on her plane. And um, it was one of those rare primaries, Trey, I think you'll appreciate this, that actually made the party better by the end of it. These were two candidates that electrified the party. They, it was a hard fought, sometimes brass knuckle primary. And to this day, there's some residual animosity between their two staffs. Um, but the party came out stronger. It, it, both tactically, strategically, from a messaging perspective. Um, and it was just historic on so many levels. That was, even though I ended up on the wrong side of that primary, the losing side of that primary, I would do it again in a heartbeat um, because she was an amazing person to work with and he was an amazing adversary. It just, it, it, to see the United States, to see our politics sort of turn a major corner in that. We were about to make history, nominating one of the two of them. We were going to make history. Um, and uh, I'm so proud to have been a, a, played a small part in it. You know, well, in some ways that was yesterday in the grand scheme mm -hmm. of things. And in other ways, it feels like it was forever ago. Has politics changed since then? And in, in, in what ways, if you were talking to someone who wasn't around for that race, you would say, Things are different now in this way. Gosh, uh, how much time do we have? You know, it is, we have changed and our politics have changed. I mean, think about this. The iPhone was released in the middle of that campaign. There were no smartphones before that campaign. The way we communicate, the way we share information, the way we internalize information, today is so different than it was in 2007, 2008, when that campaign was underway. The speed at which we move and communicate and share information, um, right? Twitter wasn't a thing until after that campaign. It wasn't a thing in, in politics until after that thing. Now Twitter tends to drive our political dialogue. So I, as a communications guy, I always lead with that, right? Because that was the campaign that changed in many ways how we communicate politically with one another. I also think our politics, look, our politics has always had an edge to it, always, right? Going, We've had one nonpartisan president in the history of the republic. And in the race to succeed him between Adams and Jefferson, they were calling each other liars, thieves, scoundrels, and frankly, much worse. You know, we've, you know, we had a former Treasury Secretary killed in a duel by a sitting vice president. We've had beatings on the floor of Congress, canings. We've had, uh, you know, we went to war with ourselves over the question of whether or not we should keep people in bondage. We, we put Japanese Americans in internment camps during World War II. The 60s was a decade of strife on many levels, political assassinations and college students being shot by the National Guard and voters, you know, African-Americans being beaten for trying to exercise their right to vote. Our politics has always had an edge at, at best. But there was also a certain level of decorum, despite all that. When it came to the daily practice of politics, there was a certain level of decorum. Yeah, Hillary and Obama threw elbows at one another. But there was a certain level of decorum. 
where the yes, McCain versus Obama was a hard fought race. And there was negative campaigning on both sides. But when John McCain at a town hall was confronted by a supporter who attacked Barack Obama for being a Muslim, McCain jumped to his defense. That's rare these days. There's only a few, few people out there that I can think of in our politics today that would do that anymore. We are now much more, we have figured out how to capitalize on our division um, instead of actually seeking to unify. We've, our, our political class, our political ecosystem realized that there is more incentive in stoking division. And I think, again, we've always been divided. And that's okay. But we have figured out how to, we, we have stopped trying to move past the division, it feels like. Um, and I don't think it's going to get better anytime soon. I'm hopeful it will get better, but I think it's going to get worse before it gets better. Um, and I do think sort of 2008 might have been the real beginning of that. Our politics started to get even edgier. The financial crisis of 2008 further eroded people's trust in institutions, both in government and in Wall Street and in, in business. Um, our media is becoming more divided. I, I really feel like it was sort of that time period coming out of the Bush years. The Iraq war was very divisive. All of those things swirling around um, really changed, I think, our politics for the worse. We're going to pause right there. More of my conversation with Mo Alethi is next. Pull up a chair and join me, Rachel Campos Duffy. And me, former U.S. Congressman Sean Duffy, as we share our perspective on the discussions happening at kitchen tables across America. Download from the kitchen table to Duffy's at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you download podcasts. All right, we're going to come back to that theme. I like to call it the difference between contrast and conflict. And I think we're in a period of conflict right now. You mentioned, you know, uh, the late Senator McCain, you know, simply sticking up for a, a man when his religion was miscited. I think Joe Biden, even in the last couple of years, I'm, I think I have this right, referred to Mike. Pence as a decent man, which is mm-hmm. which is hardly effusive praise. I mean, to to you know, if the best I could come up with for Mo Alethi was he's a decent man, you might be underwhelmed at my introduction. But still, it was rare that he would say that, and he was criticized for saying that. That's right. That's exactly right. One of the one of my favorite things that that the president says. He's been saying it for a few years. I don't know if it was an original thought to him um, or if it was something he picked up earlier in his career. But he, he said this repeatedly and he said it when he delivered the eulogy for John McCain. Um, he said, never. it's OK to question another man's policies, never question his motivation. And, you know, one, because it's not right. I don't know what's in your head. I don't know what drives you. Trey, right? You and I are going to disagree on most political issues. 
But if I start ascribing motivations to you, as opposed to actually hearing what yours are, um, then I'm, I'm doing the conversation a disservice. It's also bad politics to do that, right? Like if I'm going to start saying that you're a fascist because you disagree with me, or you're going to start calling me a communist, a socialist or whatever, because I disagree with you, it's much less likely that I'm going to even want to deal with you, that I'm going to want to sit down and negotiate. How can I negotiate with someone that just said I'm a racist or a socialist or a snowflake or whatever? Um, we all know the story, the legendary stories of Ronald Reagan and Tip O'Neill pounding on each other publicly, but then sitting down with one another and working it out. We're not doing that anymore. We're just focusing on the pounding. And it's because we are publicly ascribing motivations to one another that make it impossible for then us for us to then sit down. That was one of the few rules that I heard early on when I was in Congress is exactly that. Uh, guys like Peter Welch, who mm-hmm. uh, an avowed progressive, but one of the nicer human beings you'll ever meet in your life, he he said, look, I, we're going to disagree. I'm never going to challenge your motivations unless you give me a reason to do so. Mm-hmm. And, and that rule was honored until it wasn't. All right, I want to, you've got experience in general elections and primaries. We ju- we're in May. That's the season of primaries. Is your communication methodology or strategy different? Should it be different if you're trying to win a primary as opposed to appealing in a general election? That's a really hard question because it actually shouldn't be. It shouldn't be. I think the best, uh, the best leaders are the ones who can appeal to their base and to a general election audience by saying the same thing. Here's the real answer to your question. It depends. It depends on where you're running. It depends on what you're running for. You and I have talked about this before. If you're running for a house race, the number of genuinely competitive house races around the country have completely diminished. And so the real battle is in the primary. And in order to win a primary in a non-competitive general election state or district, the best way to do that is by speaking to the extreme, speaking to the far right or the far left, because those are the voters who are the most energized in primaries. If you're running for a statewide race, governor or senator in a swing state, in a battleground state, you shouldn't deliver a different message in a primary and in a general. The problem is, I think, and we're seeing this in some states today, right? We saw it in Ohio, which is a competitive state still for, you know, they've got a Democratic senator right now, even though it's voted for Republican in the last few presidentials, they've got at least one Democratic senator and they've got a very competitive Senate race coming up for the other seat. Um, But the Republican candidates went hard to the extreme. Um, Pennsylvania, right? Not even settled yet. Uh, Their Senate race, the day after the primary, it's still too close to call in the Republican primary. Those candidates went tack to the right. The problem is 
And this is on us as voters. This is entirely on us as voters. The voters do not turn out at the same level in primaries as they do in general elections. And so if we choose to sit out a primary, we're handing over, we're just turning the keys over to those who do turn out in a primary, which is a small percentage of the, of the eligible voting population. We are allowing a small percentage of people determine who the nominees are. It's silly to wait to that point to get involved. And so if more voters, reasonable, open-minded voters continue to sit it out because they're disgusted with the process, the process will get more disgusting. And they're just abdicating their responsibility and control over the process to the people who are the most strident on both sides of the aisle. I, I used to be uh, mesmerized by this argument between ideological purity and electability. It seems to me, maybe I'm wrong, that the electability argument has diminished a little bit. Um, but you're the you're the communications political expert. I am not. I don't hear that much talk. Some, but not as much about whether or not the person is electable in a general. It is much more. I was playing golf not too long ago with a U.S. senator, and we were remembering that another U.S. senator said, "I would rather have thirty ideological, ideologically pure Republicans than a majority." And I thought, wow, 30 is all, I mean, 30, you're never going to do anything. You got purity, but you're never going to do anything. Is that still, is there still tension there or is it all kind of going, going towards ideological purity, whatever that means? So we do some polling out of our institute. Right, I'm going to tell you about this because I think this is illustrative of what you're talking about. We do this polling a couple times a year for the past three or four years that we call our civility poll, right? It is a poll designed to gauge voter attitudes towards civility and polarization in politics. How bad do they think it is? Who do they blame? And do they really want it? And it's that third question that I'm really the most interested in. Because yes, people think it's bad. On a scale of zero to 100, zero being no division, 100 being edge of civil war, the mean response is about 73, right? People think we are three quarters of the way to civil war. They blame everybody for it. But that third question, do you really want it? If you ask straight up, should there be more civility in politics? Like 93% say yes. 7% say no. <laughs> I guess we have too much civility in our politics, but 93% say yes. So when you ask the question differently, it gets to the tension you're talking about. Agree or disagree with these statements. Number one, common ground and compromise are noble goals I want my leaders to aspire to. About 78% say they agree with that. 78% say common ground and compromise are what they want their leaders to, to shoot for. 78%. Very next question, agree or disagree. I'm tired of leaders who compromise on my values. I want them to stand up and fight the other side. 74% say they agree with that. 
It's as if these voters are saying, I totally want you to find common ground. As soon as you come to where I'm standing, we'll be on common ground. And I think that is the tension. You Look, you know this better than I. I mean, you've actually you know, had the courage to put your name on a ballot and, and to go serve in office. But that's a tough line for an elected leader to walk. What is it, right? If elected leaders are supposed to be representing the will of the people that they represent, and people are saying, giving that mixed message, I want you to find common ground, but don't compromise on the things that are important to me. How do you do that? How do you do that? And that gets, I think, a a very long-winded way to get to your question, right? Like, what is more important to voters? Ideological alignment or the ability to get things done? electability. People say, I want leaders who will get things done so long as the things I care about, right? What, where, what is, we're a little schizophrenic on this as, as a people. And I think our politics reflects that. The people who are not, the people who are clear are the bases of both parties. And again, it, that brings us back to the previous conversation. Right. The base of both parties are very clear that they want ideological purity and alignment. They're the ones who turn out in primaries. They're the ones who are deciding who the nominees are. And then it makes it harder to come together later. Mo, I want you to run. I want you (laughs) to have to do I want you to go to the grocery store on Saturdays like I used to do because my wife, you know, my wife wanted to torture me, so she would send me to the grocery store. And my favorite question, and it was always with like a ton of honesty. I mean, they really believed it. They said, my question is, why can't y'all just get together and do the right thing? I must have been asked that question a million times. And I'm sitting there thinking because there is no consensus on what that right thing is. I mean, I think we all which is why I like having people on that have a different perspective. We all, I mean, I saw polling, you know better than I do whether this is true. Two thirds of all Democrats don't have a single Republican friend. Two thirds of all Republicans don't have a single Democrat friend. Is that, does that polling seem right to you? Yeah, there's another similar poll that asks, um, uh, and they've been tracking this over years, um, how you would feel about your child dating outside or marrying outside of fill in the blank, right? Marrying outside of your faith, marrying outside of your race. And uh, over the past few years, more people are upset with the idea of their children marrying outside of their party than outside of their faith or race. Now, I guess that's progress you know, in, 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 in many ways, but the fact that people would be that animated over their children marrying outside of their party um, is really telling about where we are today. I think you're right. Look, we live in these filter bubbles. We have isolated ourselves in many ways from one another, right? We, we live, you know, sociologists have been talking for the past couple of decades about this phenomenon called the, the, the big sort, where people have increasingly been moving into neighborhoods, into communities surrounded by people who think and sound and oftentimes look like they do to the point where we have sorted ourselves geographically, physically and geographically. 
But that's extended well beyond where we live, right? We live in communities surrounded by people who think and sound like we do. We work in communities surrounded or at places surrounded by people who think and sound like we do. Go to school surrounded by people who think and sound like we do. The algorithms, the algorithmic gods make sure that my social media feed is populated by people who think and sound like I do. We get our news from places that reinforce what we already think. So I've completely isolated myself from anyone else. When you isolate yourself from someone else, it makes it easier to demonize that person. Uh, to to ascribe a motivation to them, as we were talking about earlier. And that's a problem, right? Like if we are not able to engage, and how will we ever understand? And if we can't understand, how do we deal with? And I don't think we can. And I think most people, or not most, but a lot of people are saying, fine, then let's not deal. Let's just win right? Let's just win. Let's just, if there's more of us than them, then let's just push through our particular legislative agenda or what have you. That's okay. Sometimes, I mean, politics is a game of winners and losers, but sometimes it's better when we compromise. Sometimes it's better when we deal and we've completely, like, we just seem to be completely losing that. The president tried it on some things, he didn't on others. And we're dealing with that here, right? If he, on, on you know, his first big COVID relief package, he just pushed through with all democratic votes. When he tried to do infrastructure, um, he got a lot of grief from his own party for actually trying to bring Republicans in. And so it's, uh, you know, it's complicated. And you're right. Voters are saying both things at the same time. Go do the right thing. Deal if you have to. Just don't deal on anything I care about. All right. I'm going to ask you a couple more questions because you got a job and I don't. So I know I know you got to get back to work. I, I, I've thought about the gender divide. I've thought about an education divide, a racial divide. I'd never really thought about the rural versus urban divide until you kind of force me to have to look at it and think about it. So you know a lot about it and I don't. So I'm going to ask you, it seems like that divide, which doesn't get a ton of attention, people don't really think in those terms, but it's pretty real that we can tell based on how close you live to a city, what your politics are. It was one of the greatest predictors of in the last two presidential elections, even more so than your party identification, the greatest predictor of how you were going to vote. The closer you live to the downtown of a major city, the more likely you voted for the Democratic nominee for president. And the further away you live from the downtown of a major city, the more likely you voted for the Republican nominee for president. Um, it's very real. And I think it is a reflection of a lot of things, right? The um, uh, economic divide between rural and urban, uh, to some extent, racial divides, educational divides, all the other divides you talk about are really sort of magnified between urban and rural. It plays itself out in not just in elections, but it plays itself out legislatively, where there's oftentimes a huge tension between the two. 
And it's widened. The, the politics of it are getting worse as both sides write off the other, right? Democrats have, have in many cases, in many places, just written off the rural vote because it's too hard, right? So let's just run up the vote in cities. Republicans have written off the urban vote. I mean, you watch the network that, that, that employs us both, and they paint a picture of our cities as these burning hellscapes. They're not doing that to win over urban voters, right? They're doing that because they want to scare rural voters, right? Republicans have written off the urban areas, and they're just trying to drive up the rural vote. And both parties have shown some success with that. Donald Trump won by pulling out rural voters that had all but given up on politics. Why he spoke to them, that's a whole different podcast. But he was that was his focus. And Democrats continue to do the same. So I think the political divide between urban and rural is going to continue to widen unless we can start to figure out how to close that divide in other areas. And it can be done, I think. Um, you, you've talked about this, right? Bill Clinton and George uh, Bush winning both urban and rural communities. Um, Bobby Kennedy was, to me, I love studying his 1968, short, um, sadly, you know, tragically short-lived campaign. Um, but he would go to rural Appalachia and the next day go to the inner city of, of you know, in, in wherever and give the same speech and could speak to the alienation um, that both of those communities felt because they do share a lot of the same concerns. A lot of urban areas um, have entire populations that feel like they don't have access to opportunity. A lot of rural areas are frustrated because they don't feel like they have access to opportunity. I think while my party spends a lot of time talking about income inequality, I honestly think the, the central, one of the central questions in our politics, the central drivers is not income inequality, it's opportunity inequality. And People across the rural-urban divide feel that. If we start the conversation there, and the educational divide that comes from that, and so many other, I think, I think we got a shot at narrowing it a little bit. Well, I'm going to ask you one more serious question, and I'm going to let you get out of here, hopefully with a couple of fun things. All right. My last serious question is this, and you know, my my Democrat friends are really, really, really unhappy with Joe Manchin. And I always say back to him, he represents a state where I don't think Secretary Clinton won a single county, and I don't think President Biden won a single county. So what are your realistic expectations of a guy who comes from a state where the Democrat nominee for president did not carry a single county, which leads me to a conversation about the setting of expectations? Because I think that's what drives the anger is we... We tell folks on the right, if we win the House and the Senate, we're going to do all these things, and then they're not done, and that builds anger. And then you think, well, we won the White House, and we have the House, and we have the Senate. It's 50-50. We're going to do all these things, but we got Joe Manchin, and to a lesser extent, from your state of Arizona, Kirsten Sinema. I just go back to 
I mean, what did you think he was going to do? He represents West Virginia. I mean, am I wrong to think that way? No, you're not. And I mean, it speaks to the failure of, look, I think one of the biggest drivers in America right now is just a complete and total lack of trust in our institutions. And it ain't just government, right? People don't trust. The only institutions that they trust right now, uh, if you believe polling, are uh, the military and firefighters. Every other major institution, politics, government, media, academia, business, Silicon Valley, are underwater in terms of their trust rating. People don't trust them. Why? Because they don't feel like they're doing anything for them. They don't feel like they're producing results that benefit them. And so that frustration has been bubbling, simmering, and now at a boiling point, going back to the 60s, going back to the Vietnam era, and then Watergate, and then we can go through a bunch of milestones that shows how our, our trust in institutions has been degrading. And so all that's to say that people don't believe that these institutions are giving them results. So when they actually get a little taste of control, they demand those results. But the results don't come easily. And I'm with you. Like, I don't like every vote Joe Manchin has taken as a, as a Democrat. But Joe Manchin was elected to represent voters in West Virginia. He was not elected to represent the activists of the Democratic Party. The same can be said about the Republicans who face the ire of former President Trump and his supporters because they voted for infrastructure, right? There's a handful of Republicans that actually voted for the infrastructure bill and immediately got blasted by their party they are elected to represent their voters. Their voters wanted this. They, their voters wanted this infrastructure. And so that's the tension, right? Like as an elected leader, you're there to represent your, your, your voters. They can vote you out once they feel like you've stopped doing that. You're not there to represent the Republican Party. Um, but it makes it, if it adds to the frustration people see when they say, okay, we got everything we wanted electorally. Now let's go push through our agenda. They're not going to get it when, as if there are continue to be, they're not going to always get it as purely as they would like it. As long as there are people out there who are still representing their voters, um, as opposed to the party. We're going to take a quick break. More of my interview with Mo Alethi is coming up. Or you got a room full of 100 people. You cannot ask them who they voted for, and you cannot ask them what their political orthodoxy is, but you get to ask one question, and they have to answer it honestly. And you have to predict what their, what their political persuasion is. What one question would you ask to be the best indicator of someone's political identification, and you can't ask who did you vote for? Where do you live? Really? You would ask where you live? That, that sadly, are, again, it goes back to the big sort. There are a couple of other questions that I would, if I, if I had two or three questions, as uncouth as it might be, how much do you make, right? And, wow. what, and what was the last 
um, uh, where did your schooling end? Where did your education end? Right? Because those tend to be the three of the greatest predictors. Your geography, as we've talked about, right? Urban versus rural. Um, your income level and your education level. Followed very closely, um, but slightly less of a predictor, uh, race. Um, so, but it is that education, income, and geography nexus that can do a pretty good job of telling you uh, uh, what someone is likely to do politically. And that's why you were successful in politics, and I was not, because I would ask, what is your what is your view of human nature? Do you think human nature is inherently good or bad? Because that tends to signal to me what role you think government plays to correct behavior or to facilitate what your predisposition already is. That's funny, but this is it's Ian, this is why these conversations are so interesting. Because I'm not sure that would tell me that. I'm not sure because I think. I think you're good. Don't agree with you on a lot of stuff, but I think you're good. You think I'm good, right? I, I'm, I'm a Democrat. I think there should be a more activist role for government. That doesn't mean it's because I think human nature is bad. I think it's because I think human nature is good and they need, they need help dealing with some other institutional failings. Right. So for me, I'm not sure it's that. I'll tell you what's another really interesting question. And we saw this in one of our recent polls. What value do you want your elected leaders to hold up? What is the most important value? And we gave them a list of about 10, but three really popped. And so I'll turn the question back around to you. If these three values um, were put in front of you, which one would you pick and how would, uh, could it help you predict where someone votes? Freedom, responsibility, and respect. Those were the three that rose to the top. But when you start doing the cross tabs, you start to see how they break down politically. What, what would you think if those were the three in front of you? Well, that's a tough one because I hear Republicans talking about freedom more than I do. I mean, that, 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 I, I just got through. I mean, between freedom and truth, I always pick truth, but I'm probably an outlier. Uh, on our side, I would say respect. I would I would say Democrats would cite that more than Republicans. And your third one was responsibility. Yeah. And, you know, the lawyer in me, Mo, would ask for I would ask a follow up question, personal responsibility or more global accountability and responsibility. That's the beauty of these polls is it gives the it gives the respondent to the opportunity to, to um, define it how they want. I'll tell you how it broke down. So overall, the electorate as a whole, freedom came out on top. Responsibility. There was a little bit of a gap. Responsibility was number two. Respect was number three. When you break the electorate down, freedom was number one, driven by near unanimity amongst Republicans. Number with Democrats, responsibility came out on top, followed closely by respect. Wow. And amongst independents, freedom barely edged out responsibility. And when you think about, I think one of the greatest cases of like policy 
lately and politics that that illustrates this, that makes that question come to life, COVID and mandates, where oh. you hear Republicans or, you know, red states or sort of, you know, I guess, yeah, I guess really Republicans pushing uh, or those who are sort of anti-mandate leaning into the freedom argument in more blue leaning places in cities, the pro mandate crowd was leaning heavily into the responsibility argument. And then you had a little dose of respect sprinkled in there, but that's really what the mandate argument was about. The entire debate was about freedom versus responsibility. And I'm so simple-minded, Mo. I sit here and think that for every freedom you and I have, there is a corresponding responsibility that is every Mm -hmm. bit as important as the freedom itself. You and I have the right to free speech, but we have a responsibility not to lie about one another. Right. I, which leads me, I used to ask people to pick between freedom and truth, and there's this word in our you know, Declaration of Independence, which incredibly aspirational document did not get fully codified in the Constitution, which is what what I want to ask you about. I mean, we had the this aspirational language. We hold these truths to be self-evident. All people are created equal. And then that doesn't wind up getting codified in the Constitution. If you could have a conversation with any of our founding fathers, who would it be and what would you ask them? Oh boy, who would it be? Oh man, that's such a great question. I've long wanted to pull together our students uh, at Georgetown from around the country and do a new constitutional convention, right? Knowing knowing everything we know now, how would you do it differently? Look, some of some of some of the problems we face today go back to this period of time, right? The urban rural divide, you know, it's more pronounced today. But our geog- I mean, so much of the early days of the Republic were driven by the geographic divide, whether it was North versus South. Or I think if I were to want to have a conversation, I don't know if there's a, a specific question, but I think if I were to have a, a, a conversation with any of our founding, any of the framers, I'd want to talk to them about representation. I'd want to talk to them about what they thought the staying power would be of the system they came up with to determine how we represented one another. Because while it might have made sense at the time, I'm not so sure it does now. And when we look at issues like redistricting and gerrymandering and the elimination of swing areas and swing districts, and, and uh, it, it has... It has really served to divide us and polarize us. And we've got political leaders picking their voters instead of voters picking their political leaders. And I'm not sure that serves us well. I know it doesn't serve us well. I think if we were to could blow that whole system up and figure out a better way to determine our representation, I think it would dramatically change the way we talk in our politics. So if I were to go back and challenge them, it would be to think about that. Because I, I look, I think the Constitution is one of the most brilliant documents ever crafted. The fact that it has held and that our institutions have stood, st- have stood 
They might have been rattled a few times, but they have withstood some pretty significant stress tests. Tells you just how brilliant it was. But it wasn't flawless. And it has to it has had to evolve at times. They could not see into the future. And this was one area where I think I would love to be able to challenge them on that a little bit. All right. And we'll let you go with this. I want you to think back because not only are you the director of a political program and you've been involved in politics, but you also have a communications background. What was the worst communications day you ever had? And as you think back on it, you can't change the facts, but you can change your response to it. Is there anything you would have done differently? Is there is there one moment that you just think, oh, my gosh, I did not wake up that morning thinking that was going to happen. And now upon the cool reflection of a number of years, I would love to have handled it this way. Um, <laughs> there, there's so many. Um in 2005, I was the communications director for then Virginia Lieutenant Governor Tim Kaine in his campaign for governor. And uh, we were running against the attorney general of Virginia. And uh, the attorney general resigned from his position early in the campaign in order which was sort of tradition in Virginia. Wasn't a law that you had to, but it was tradition that if a attorney general was running for governor, they would step down from the position and be full-time candidates for governor. And never missing an opportunity to pop my opponent in the mouth, I put out a scathing statement absolutely scathing statement. Um, basically, uh, being a slightly hyperbolic, but calling him a fraud who had let down the voters of Virginia and his craven political move. I was just looking for an opportunity to pop him. And I hit send. And didn't take long for me to get calls from every reporter saying, "What? what is this? Getting uh, calls from my candidate <laughs> saying, what is this? Getting editorials written in several major newspapers in the state saying Kane needs to put a leash on his attack dog. And the thing is, I knew it almost immediately after I hit send that it was just not, it was tone deaf. It was not the kind of thing that actually matters, right? Like the amount of stuff, when I look back over my career as a communicator, the amount of energy I put into things that voters do not care about, don't want to hear. And I think that stuff has actually gotten worse, yeah. right? Like it, was, it wasn't until the end, towards the end of my career that I finally began to realize that. It was actually one of the motivations for me to get out of the game and start doing what I do now. When I was at the DNC, I instructed my staff, like, don't get into Twitter fights with the RNC staff. Because nobody cares about that. But I look at how some of the communicators in both parties do it today. Um, and frankly, more than just the communication staff, Trey. I mean, I remember a couple of years ago watching two Republican senators engaged in a Twitter fight with one another. 
two Republican senators engaged in a Twitter fight with one another. And all I wanted to do was tweet back, like, y'all know your offices are just down the hall, right? <laughs> you can just pick up the phone or you can just walk down the hall and have this. But no, the, the fight was part of the game. I wish I could go back and realize that sooner in my career, because I think I would have been less of a jerk uh, some days. And maybe, maybe a little bit more effective as a communicator. Well, I got to confess, I cannot see you as a jerk because you've never been one to me and you've never been one when we've been on a panel together. So one of the one of the joys of my post-political life, Trey, has actually been getting to know you, you know, through our work uh, on TV and, and just the conversations we've had on the phone. And when you came up to Georgetown and I think if we all take a minute to look at someone that we think is an opponent, an adversary. An enemy. I mean, Trey, I've told you this. You were public enemy number one for Democrats there for a couple of years, right? You were the guy we loved to hate. And I was fueling that. I was part one of one of many who was fueling that. And getting to know you, I was surprised. And I wish we all did that a little bit more. So thank you for bringing me on today. Thank you for giving me the chance to get to know you. And face some of my own preconceived notions. Well, you're kind to say that. I wish the, I wish the woman I've lived with the last 32 years felt that way. The better she's gotten to know me, the less she's like. Yeah. So. Some people, you got to find the right balance. Some people you don't want to get to know too well. <laughs> Mo Alethe, I have enjoyed every second of this. Thank you for jeopardizing your career and good standing by having me to Georgetown. I loved every second of it. And I hope you'll have me back, and I can't wait till we're on a panel uh, together again, and we can show contrast with absolutely no conflict. I'm looking forward to that, too. All right. Take care of yourself. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, Mo Alethe. Thank you, Mo. Thanks, Trey. Thank you for spending another Tuesday with Trey. Please subscribe, rate, or review this podcast on Apple Podcast or at foxnewspodcast.com. You've been listening to the Trey Gowdy Podcast on the Fox News Podcast Network. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Ben Domenech, Fox News contributor and editor of the Transom.com daily newsletter. And I'm inviting you to join a conversation every week. It's the Ben Domenech Podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com.